electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, the long haul. President Trump warning that we could see up to 200,000 American deaths due to coronavirus. It's absolutely critical for the American people to follow the guidelines for the next 30 days. It's a matter of life and death. What a number of that scale means to the future of corporate America. Eurasia Group's Ian Bremmer joins us. As the American uh, economy moves deeper into not just recession, but deeper into much more visible unemployment, there will be a separate push that will matter from this Trump administration. And how long the isolation could last. We'll hear from Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Hopefully going into next week, you start to see a slowing. You're going to see the burden on the healthcare system continue to increase in New York well after the point which new infections have peaked and started to decline. Those stories plus fired from Amazon, the New York worker who said the warehouse wasn't safe. It's Wednesday, April 1st, 2020. No fooling. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. We just closed out a record first quarter, and by record, we're talking an infamous record here. The Dow shedding more than 23 percent just in the last three months. That is its worst quarterly performance since 1987 and its worst first quarter performance ever. It's the first day of a new quarter and a new month, and President Trump and his coronavirus task force are strongly urging all Americans to hunker down for the next 30 days. The administration's health officials predict that 100,000 to 240,000 Americans could die from coronavirus, even if the country adheres to strict social distancing. Here's the president's warning. I want every American to be prepared for the hard days that lie ahead. We're going to go through a very tough two weeks, and then hopefully... As the experts are predicting, as I think a lot of us are predicting after having studied it so hard, you're going to start seeing some real light at the end of the tunnel. While the numbers are stark, Dr. Anthony Fauci, head of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, cautioned that now is not the time to be discouraged. So what we're going to see, and that's we got to brace ourselves, in the next several days to a week or so, we're going to continue to see things go up. We cannot be discouraged by that because the mitigation is actually working and will work. Our first podcast guest is Eurasia Group CEO Ian Bremmer, who joined the show via Skype this morning on what the pandemic is doing to global business. Andrew Ross Sorkin kicks things off. So much to talk to you about, uh, Ian, in terms of what this is going to do to our globe and our relations with so many others. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about just domestically is the idea of, of of the government effectively forcing companies to start using its powers or the government using its powers to force companies uh, to manufacture and make things that it historically had not. The, the administration uh, up until this week had effectively tried to avoid doing that, though they've now, it appears, based on some reports, they've used that, uh, that privilege hundreds of thousands of times uh, under this administration. So the question is, um, how you think this changes be- the relationship between the government and the business community? 
Well, they've used it in small ways, hundreds of thousands of times, mostly to facilitate defense procurement, um, move things ahead in line, not telling companies to completely retool themselves to make ventilators instead of automotive. Um, I mean, let's keep in mind, I mean, given how strongly aligned uh, this cabinet has been with uh, the private sector, and also given how Trump has felt like he's had pretty good relations with key CEOs uh, in trying to help him together dig out of this crisis. I mean, the first big market move up uh, on the back of the crisis in the U.S. was when Trump uh, was, was in the Rose Garden with all the CEOs together. Um, you, you, there are a lot of reasons why he doesn't necessarily want to use force majeure um, against them individually. His perspective has been they're doing what they can anyway. Let's move in that direction. So I, I think unless you see um, real urgency and public uh, push against individual companies um, that that are to, to fill uh, to fill any of those holes, uh, you're not going to see uh, President Trump or the administration try to uh, roll this out uh, against company after company after company. More interesting will be industrial policy pushes that come for larger sectors being seen as strategically important, bringing uh, labor back to the United States when unemployment hits, say, 15 percent, as Goldman Sachs is now expecting by the middle of the year, uh, moving key supply chain back to the United States. I think those sorts of calls that you've seen from Peter Navarro, for example, in the last 48 hours, that, that's more likely where we're going. And do you think that's going to be a function of government pushing business or business deciding that it's actually better for business to be near its customers, given some of the supply chain issues and lessons that we may be learning uh, from this crisis? Oh, I think it's going to be both. Uh, on, on the one hand, there's no question that a just in time supply chain uh, given the shock that we've seen, uh, needs to be more resilient. Uh, just in case supply chain uh, is going to be more in the United States uh, and more regional, more in Mexico, too. So companies are going to be making those decisions themselves as they are looking uh, to pare back costs. Certainly some of that footprint would clearly come from China and from other emerging markets as they experience their own rolling shutdowns right. um, over the coming months and towards the end of the year. Uh, this is not just a one or two month question, obviously. But I, I do think that as we get closer to the election and as the American uh, economy moves deeper into not just recession, but deeper into much more visible unemployment, there will be a separate push that will matter from this Trump administration. Country companies will need to so be seen the, as being patriotic. Give us the geopolitical outlook, which is to say, do you think long term as a result of this crisis and everything else that's going on around the world that we are going to come more back together? Because I know you thought that that was possible probably only a year ago to maybe even splitting apart even more. But yeah, this, this idea uh, of, a, of a G zero world where you're absent leadership um, it is moving towards deglobalization. Um, and obviously, that's not efficient for global markets. We, we saw that last year already in the technology sector. I think that's now going to be driving more deeply into both manufacturing and services uh, for some of the reasons we discussed. I think that because the thing that we're not dealing with yet is just how badly this is going to hit the non-China emerging markets. The Chinese economy comes back, but we have challenging relations with China. That's going to grow for lots of reasons. But emerging markets can't, most of them won't be able to social distance effectively in urban areas. The people are too packed together. They have shared sanitation in many cases, all of that sort of thing. They aren't going to have the money to be able to rebuild themselves. They can't do the stimulus that we can in the U.S. or the advanced economies. 
as all of that happens, you're going to see herd immunity effectively occur across emerging markets. And that hit is going to devastate those economies in ways that you won't experience in the U.S. and in Europe. Clearly, that's going to make it much more challenging to get travel and business restarted with those parts right. of the world. That's going to drive more volatility and more fragmentation as well. Right. Ian Bremmer, always good to see you. Always appreciate your perspective. Uh, hope to see you again very soon. A fresh read on the housing market. Uh, mortgage applications out. I want to get over to Diana Olick, who has the latest numbers. Diana. Andrew, total mortgage application volume increased just over 15 percent last week compared with the previous week. That, according to the Mortgage Bankers Association's seasonally adjusted index. But that was driven entirely by refinancing because after rising for two weeks, mortgage rates dropped to the lowest level ever on the MBA survey. The average rate on the 30-year fixed with conforming loan balances plunged to 3.47 percent from 3.82 percent for loans with a 20 percent down payment all thanks to the Fed stepping in and buying mortgage-backed bonds. And with that, refinance applications spiked 26% for the week and were 168% higher than the same week one year ago. But rock-bottom rates meant very little to home buyers. Mortgage applications to purchase a home fell 11% for the week and were 24% lower than the same week one year ago. Today, of course, is the first of the month when a lot of people pay their mortgages. But with thousands of Americans either out of work or losing income, mortgage servicers are Begin, are being barraged with calls for help. All borrowers with government-backed loans, that's Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, the FHA, and the VA, are entitled to loan forbearance under the Economic Recovery Plan. They can miss payments for up to six months, and then those payments would be tacked on to the end of the loan. Now, those borrowers make up just over 62% of the mortgage market. At Caliber Home Loans, an independent lender which services three-quarters of a million of those mortgages, the phones have been ringing off the hook. We have... Um uh, set up uh, IVR, which is the uh, integrated voice response, um, which basically allows customers to self-service. Uh, on Sunday itself, we had about 8,000 IVR uh, requests that were um, where people were able to get their own forbearance online. Sanjeev Das was head of Citibank Mortgage during the subprime crisis, and he said that while the mortgage market today is much more healthy, the impact of the coronavirus could be even worse than subprime. Back to you guys. Hey, Diana, just um, given how much concern and how much tumult there's been in the mortgage market overall, what, what does that mean for anybody who's trying to refinance with these low rates or anything else that's happening? Well, look, rates are low, and it's a good way to lower that monthly payment, especially for people who might have lost some income. You can still apply for a mortgage refinance, and they are now moving things online very slowly. Some states you still can't sign or notarize, but we've talked to title companies and notaries, et cetera, and they are moving the entire process online. Also, the FHFA, which is Fannie, Freddie, et cetera, they have relaxed some of the standards like the in-home appraisal part of it and face-to-face -face notarization so that you can get those refinances done more easily now, but it will probably be a long wait. Diana, thank you. Great to see you. New York Mayor Bill de Blasio ordering the city's human rights commissioner to now investigate Amazon over the firing of one of its workers. That's Chris Smalls, a management assistant at a Staten Island fulfillment center who says that he was fired Monday afternoon following a strike that he organized to demand more protections for workers. I had spoken to Chris Smalls Monday night on the CNBC special, and here's what he had told me then. Me being the voice and sticking up for those who don't have a voice, um, I felt it was the right thing to do. Unfortunately, it cost me my job, but um, I don't want to work for a company that doesn't take care of their people. And 
the Amazon has dropped the ball on that. So it is what it is. Um, I'm still going to continue to fight. Small said that he had asked for the building to be closed for professional cleaning after another worker tested positive for COVID-19 last week. In a statement, Amazon said it fired Smalls after he, quote, received multiple warnings for violating social distancing guidelines. Amazon said Smalls was asked to remain home with pay for 14 days, which is a measure the company is taking at sites around the world. The company asked Smalls to go into quarantine after it came in contact with a worker that tested positive. Amazon says uh, despite that, Smalls came on site Monday, quote, further putting the teams at risk. This is unacceptable. And they have terminated his employment as a result of these multiple safety issues. I had asked him about that um, on the show, and uh, he made the comment that uh, that wasn't the case and that he was coming in unpaid. And, and uh, we went we went back and forth uh, about that issue. But he said what he saw uh, there uh, in terms of uh, workers who were coming in, uh, knowingly coming in sick, uh, in part, by the way, and it, it's such a interesting conundrum. Amazon is now paying, uh, you know, uh, an increased uh, wage um, and additional overtime fees. And so people want to come to work. But what he was saying was that there were certain people who were coming to work knowingly sick, some even vomiting on the floor. Um, hard, hard to uh, necessarily uh, be able to take all of it and, and figure out uh, whose side is right. But now uh, investigation uh, underway. Mm-hmm. Becky, over to you. Andrew, you're kind of seeing this play out at a lot of workplaces. You saw the the strike from Instacart, uh, contractors who had gone through places, other Amazon warehouses where this has been raised as an issue, grocery stores, and even some of the healthcare workers raising issues about all these things, too. Right. Obviously, it's scary times. And um, look, you're going to get some back, back and forth push from people uh, about whether or not they should be coming in. It's uh, no, it, w- it was a remarkable conversation just to, just to hear somebody inside. Now, he obviously uh, had a, a particular, uh, I don't want to say agenda, but a particular perspective or point of view. Um, he believed that he was being fired, by the way, for speaking up, uh, not uh, for what Amazon is now saying uh, that he was fired for. But uh, Amazon, obviously, uh, public with its with its take on this, too. But now we're watching investigators and I imagine we're going to see lots more of this, uh, as you just said, across the country. Think think of trying to run Amazon as you do business as usual with the stay at home across the country. I have no idea how this is happening. And I I don't know. I I don't have any advice. I don't know. I don't know what to tell uh, the company to do. But I I just the daunting challenge of of trying to do that. and, And a lot of people for them to stay at home are depending on Amazon employees not staying at home. So I don't, I, right. you know, this right. look, w- it's a, look, so I'll, much of the, these people are on I'll the front you. line. We're dependent on them in so many ways. Um, I applaud those who, who, are, who actually are coming to work. The real issue is what are companies doing to, to keep the employees protected um, in terms of gloves, uh, potentially masks, temperatures, right. uh, temperature checks, things like that. Some companies are now starting to do that. Um, but as we know, uh, so many of these materials are still yet unavailable, even to healthcare workers, let alone uh, those uh, in, that are working on the front lines to, to help us and, and the rest of the country just uh, keep going. 
Well, not to mention that so much of this, even if you're doing temperature checks, trying to tell people if they have any symptoms to stay home, uh, asymptomatic spread has been a really big problem. The CDC has now been looking at that, saying that something like 25 percent of the spread could be coming from people who are entirely asymptomatic. So how do you protect against that? Um, this is a brand new virus, one that we don't have any familiarity with, one that we're learning about more every day and every week. But that changes the, the situation pretty quickly. All I can say is that I am reliant on these Amazon people who have been coming and showing up at my my door. And I'm incredibly grateful. But the crazy thing is, as a, I, I've wanted to leave out money or leave out water or something yeah. for them, but they can't really take any of that stuff right now because, you, you again, you worry about cross-contamination. What do you do in that scenario? With Fresh Direct, you can leave a tip for the person online so that it's automatically credited to their paycheck. Right. And I know when they first started doing that, there were some complaints from employees because that's money they get tipped on, so they don't see as much of it. But it would be nice right. if you could electronically leave a tip for any of the people who are showing up at your door. I've seen people do it with Venmo, Becky. People are starting to say to people, can I Venmo you some money? Because they're just and they just take down the phone number. I'm not uh, always there. But but by the way, this is just show up and I haven't seen it. If I could do it on Amazon, I would gladly do it. And 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 so many CEOs are now talking about this just, uh, you know, on background and conversation that what they're really worried about is the supply chain a couple weeks out from now. Right. I mean, that's. That's what we're I'm very that, that's about that. becomes the larger exactly um, along the along right. the whole chain. So hope, hopefully things will uh, yeah. abate. But again, grateful for these people for showing up and doing their jobs. They are truly on the front lines with all of us. Coming up, former FDA commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb with his take on that sobering new estimate that between 100,000 and 240,000 Americans could die from the coronavirus. The real wild card here is what populous states like uh, Texas and Florida do that really haven't taken aggressive steps even now. If they don't get more aggressive, then we could be on the cusp of some of those bad outcomes. Squawk Pod, we'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. Worldwide coronavirus infections now number more than 847,000, and nearly 200,000 of those are in the United States. The death toll here in America has now topped 4,000 people. But the White House says that that number could rise to as many as 240,000 people, even if the current social distancing is maintained. Joining us right now to talk about the coronavirus pandemic and uh, what happens next in the United States is former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's a CNBC contributor. He's also on the boards of both Pfizer and Illumina. And Dr. Gottlieb, it's good to see you today. Thanks. I know we've had a lot of these numbers kind of floating around out there, but it took on a new significance yesterday. When you hear the president talk about it, you hear Dr. Fauci talk about those numbers and and think 240,000, even if we maintain social distancing. Um, What what has to happen? Can we bend the curve effectively, even if that number is the model, if we're doing everything we're supposed to be doing by staying at home? Well, I, I still think we can. Those things are hard to model. It's hard to fully bake in the impact of the mitigation tactic, tactics that we're employing right now, the social distancing. 
And we're seeing it have some effect. I mean, San Francisco looks like they're coming down their curve. Seattle really hasn't come up their curve, even though they had a large cluster and did a lot of things wrong early. It seems to have had an impact, the mitigation techniques that they've adopted there. And New York may peak next week. New York does seem to suggest signs of slowing infection. So these these approaches do work. And you look at cities like Chicago and Boston and Philadelphia and Detroit, which are going to have large outbreaks. They implemented some of these measures earlier than other cities, and hopefully it's going to have an impact and be reflected in the numbers over the course of the next two weeks. I think the real wild card here and, and the, the decision point on whether or not we're going to have the bad outcome that Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks talked about is what populous states like uh, Texas and Florida do that really haven't taken aggressive steps. Even now, they're large states. They have large urban areas that have very dense populations. And if they don't get more aggressive, then we could be on the cusp of some of those bad outcomes. I think if those states start to act very aggressively right now, we could keep this hopefully um, well below those kinds of models. If that's the case, why, why don't you think the administration has taken a firmer stance with the governor of Florida and pushed him to take some of those steps a little more seriously? Well, look, the administration's outlined pretty firm guidelines. Um, there is a tradition in this country, both under culture and law, that a lot of public health decision making is left to states and local authorities. The federal government has limited authority to impose public health restrictions on states. You can quarantine potentially uh, a city under the quarantine rule. Um, under uh, federal law, if you declare a national disaster, you have certain authorities. But they're limited authorities. Um, these decisions are left up to states and governors and, and mayors to make for their local populations for good reasons in a lot of cases, because there's a lot of variability in public health tools across the country. There's a lot of variability in how disease is experienced and how epidemics spread in different parts of the country. And you want local officials to be able to adapt measures to their local populations. So I don't think that the, the federal government's going to step in with a much firmer hand on these states other than perhaps just increased jawboning. It's really up to these governors. I just don't think you're going to see anything more from the federal government trying to force these states to take these actions. They've, they've said what they've said, and now it's on the governors. I don't understand why the, those governors have not acted more forcefully right now, especially when you look at a state like Florida. Florida has a very large epidemic underway. There's multiple hotspots. They probably were heavy, heavily seated sometime in February. This was not New Yorkers coming down in the last two weeks. This, the, this was infection that started to spread early in February, and now they have large clusters all growing up simultaneously. It's looking a lot like New York, only two weeks behind. So they should be taking much firmer action in cities like Miami and elsewhere in that state right now. They have an older population, too. Exactly. They have an older population. They have nursing homes down there that will be highly vulnerable. Now, they have a break as well. They have a warming climate. It's uh, 80 and 90 degrees there and getting humid. And the, and the heat and the humidity will be somewhat of a backstop against this virus, but not a complete backstop. This is a very novel virus. It's going to still transfer in warm weather, but it's going to help them. So they ought to take advantage of, of that lucky break that the fact that this started to spread as they were warming and start implementing aggressive measures because they, could, they can get themselves out of this and prevent a bad outcome. But I do worry about that state and the other large states that haven't been as aggressive. If they don't take more aggressive action soon, I think the kinds of numbers that Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks talked about could come to fruition. I think if, if all the states take this seriously over the next three, four weeks, um, I think we can get out of this with hopefully a better outcome than that. Uh, Dr. Gottlieb, yesterday we started hearing that the CDC is considering changing its guidelines in terms of recommending that, that everybody wear masks when they leave their house. Well, look, I, I think that in, when we made that recommendation early on not to wear a mask, it was because this, this wasn't really epidemic here in the United States. And so your likelihood of coming into contact with the virus um, was low. The absolute risk that you faced was low. There probably were 
thousands of cases in New York, not tens of thousands of cases. I think now that it's become epidemic in certain cities, a mask can be of value. A mask has two benefits. One, it can protect you. It does provide incremental protection if you wear it right, and it doesn't encourage you to touch your face. The problem with the mask is when people have it on, sometimes they're more likely to adjust it and touch their face, and then that defeats the purpose of the mask. But the bigger benefit from the mask is that if you have infection, it re dramatically reduces your risk of transmitting that infection. And that's why if you, on a population basis, if you require people to wear masks, it can cut down on the transmission of the virus. Now, you don't need a, a surgical mask. You don't need an N95 mask. You can use a cotton mask, and it's going to provide some measure of benefit um, that I just described. And so what you want to do is outline the kinds of masks consumers can wear that's not going to eat into the very scarce supply that the hospitals have right now. China's clamping down on shipments of PPE, personal protective equipment to the United States. They're actually holding up some shipments. Um, and so I think it's going to, it could get even tougher if the Chinese don't loosen uh, the restrictions that they now seem to be imposing on manufacturers in that country. Unfortunately, we've outsourced a lot of our manufacturing of these items to China, and we're now dependent on them. Doctor, on, on the mask front, do you think that, that part of the, the, the issue here in terms of when you look at the success rate of what's taking place in Japan or South Korea was the masks, was the culture of wearing, of wearing masks when you felt ill, uh, even, even just wearing them on, on public transport, and whether this is really um, uh, so, such a strong virus that you really can get it in the air? There's that, there's that story about the chorus, this a cappella group in Seattle. Uh, that, that said that, that nobody touched anything, uh, but they sang in the same room uh, for some period of time. And there's a view now that, that they got it literally in the air. Well, I think a lot more of the transfer of this virus is probably through touching contaminated surfaces into droplet transmission. We're, we don't know for sure. Um, but when you see things like the Biogen Conference in, in Boston, where 70 people got infected from a single sick individual, that certainly suggests that there was a contaminated surface. It's hard to envision one person being in close enough proximity to 70 people to spread the virus. It seems to be droplet transmission. It doesn't appear to be an airborne virus like measles, where it stays suspended in the air for a prolonged period of time. And that's what it would require to really be airborne and spread more efficiently through the air. But the mask is going to provide incremental benefit regardless. And I think, you know, if we're at the point of telling people they have to shelter in place, I think imposing a requirement that they have to wear a mask if they do, in fact, go out isn't, isn't that burdensome. Whether or not that, the mask is what made the difference in countries like Hong Kong, Singapore, and South Korea, which had a much more favorable experience with this virus than Europe and, and certainly the United States is going to have, whether or not the mask made the difference is unclear. It probably made some difference, but it's hard to isolate the effect of the mask because they did a lot of other things right in those countries as well. Hey, Scott, really quickly, you said earlier that it looks like it could peak in New York next week. I, I think when we'd spoken with you on earlier days, you had thought maybe in the next couple of weeks. Did, did things suddenly look better overnight in New York? Well, I was saying the next couple of weeks last week, so I'm, I'm consistent. <laughs> next week would be about another week on that. Um, you do, when you look at the data, you do see some suggestion that cases are slowing. Now, there's variability day to day like there was in Italy. I mean, Italy started to slow. Then there were a couple of days where it peaked back up, and, and, and then people thought, well, maybe it's not coming down. Now there seems to be a definitive trend. So it's not going to be a straight line down. It's going to be a sort of jagged line as we plateau. Um, you do start to see some suggestion that New York might be slowing and might plateau some point next week and then start to come down. It's going to be a slow transition because the mitigation steps actually have the effect of elongating the epidemic. Um, so you don't have that sharp peak up and that sharp peak down. But hopefully going into next week, you start to see a slowing. Now, remember, Becky, and we've talked about this. 
um, hospitalizations are going to lag because the time to hospitalization is at least a week after infection. And then deaths are going to lag tragically as well because time to death here is anywhere from three to six weeks. And so you're going to start to see the you're going to see the burden on the healthcare system continue to increase in New York well after the point in which new infections have peaked and started to decline. Okay, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, uh, always good to see you. Squawk Pod will be right back. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash. And that's the podcast for today. On our rundown tomorrow, the government's latest data on new filers for unemployment. This number is expected to surge for a second week as many small businesses and service companies are left with no choice but to lay off workers during the coronavirus shutdown. If you are one of those workers, please tweet us at Squawk CNBC with your story. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/slash activecash.